And uh, today, this passage that's before us, I think is one, you might think it's, well, I think it's one in which God wants to be magnified. He wants to be made, um, he, wants to, he wants us to see him as bigger and stronger and better and more wise and has a, a God who has a greater purpose for us than we could possibly fathom. And when I tell you what we're going to talk about, you might say, really? But it's true. I want to talk to you today about suffering. Uh, yeah, suffering. <laughs> it's not a subject that we enjoy talking about. No one likes suffering. Well, except some weirdos that probably are kind of sick, right? But nobody enjoys suffering. But it's important that we learn to think biblically about it and not just adopt ideas from the world or even adopt partially true ideas from the Bible. And there's a few reasons we need to understand biblically the, uh, the, the doctrine, if you will, of suffering. First, we all suffer. Have you noticed that? We all suffer in really, really small ways. Everyone does. And we suffer in large ways. Um, and if you haven't suffered, it's just because you haven't lived long enough. In fact, that's what Don Carson once, I heard a message he preached. He said, if you haven't suffered yet, it's because you, you just need to live a bit longer and you will. So we all suffer. We, we all do. Another reason we need to think about this and think biblically with our Bibles open, our minds engaged, hearing what God has to say, is we live in a world that's full of suffering. We live in a world that is racked through with suffering, and it comes in many different kinds of, many different forms. I think of natural disasters, like what's happening in Maui right now. I think I saw like 90 people are confirmed dead, 1,500 still missing, or they don't know where they're at, and uh, a lot of devastation there. Suffering comes in the form of natural disasters. It comes in the form of disease and injury to our bodies. And let's face it, it comes just when you get older, <laughs> right? There's just uh, more suffering that comes when you get older. Here's another reason, though, we need to know about this or we need to think biblically about it is it's not the way God originally intended it to be. In other words, things have gone haywire in the world. They have. Read Genesis 1 and 2, right? Days 1 to 6. It is good. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Genesis 3, things went really bad. And from there on, things have gone bad in the world. And there's one more reason that I think we need, for which we need to think about suffering biblically, and it connects us directly with our text. We need to think biblically about suffering because Paul said that if we want to be glorified with Christ, we must suffer with him. And if anybody, so I was thinking about this yesterday. If anybody in the Bible had the clout to address us about suffering, it was Paul, right? You guys know Paul's story? He suffered a lot. He suffered a lot and he suffered from natural disasters and from bodily injury and he suffered in a lot of ways. He suffered tremendously. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 
verses 24 to 27. Paul said, I have been beaten countless times, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Yikes. Uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. That was from like a windstorm that came upon the sea. On frequent journeys, I was in danger from the rivers and danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That covers the gamut. And then he had his head chopped off at the end. So we need to hear what Paul has to say. But more importantly, we need to hear what the Lord has to say. And thankfully, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Because even with Paul's experience, his experience is not authoritative. It isn't. And yours isn't, and mine isn't. God's word is authoritative, and God speaks to us in this text about suffering. So it's important for us to hear this. So the message today on suffering, which I believe our text is about, should, should, I want to say this because I think this is important. It should not leave us thinking that, we, that we're to be indifferent about suffering, either our own or the suffering of others, and that we shouldn't try to alleviate it wherever we can. We should not be indifferent about suffering, and we should try to relieve it wherever we can. And guess what? We do. <laughs> we all do. I uh, woke up the other day, I spent a few days in the mountains this last week, and the first morning there, at 9,100 feet of elevation, I woke up with a pounding headache. I think that's common for me when I, anyways, the first day anyways, as I'm adjusting to the elevation change. And I kind of suffered through it for about an hour in the morning, and then guess what I did? I took, I took some pain relief. <laughs> we all do that. We all do. And we ought to pray for one another, and we ought to seek help where we can to relieve suffering. So everything I'm, about, I'm, I'm saying today, it's not, I'm not in any way insinuating that suffering, we should just grin and bear it, and who cares, and be indifferent about it, and, and who cares about alleviating it. No, 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 no. Not at all. Christ went about doing good and healing, and we should care about people being relieved of pain and suffering. But a biblical understanding of why things are the way they are in the world and why we suffer can give us wisdom and endurance, and we're going to see from our text, and hope in the midst of suffering, even while we seek to help to relieve suffering, whether it's our own or somebody else's. Understanding why is the world so messed up? Why is, why is it like this? Why does everyone in the world suffer hardship and pain? We need to know that. It'll give us wisdom. It'll give us endurance. So we're not a flash-in-the-pan sort of Christian. Many people who profess Christ, and Jesus said it would be this way, when hardship comes, they fall away. So let's get to our text. Now remember, if you were here two weeks ago, we ended with verse 17 of Romans 8, which said that we are, if we are children, 
which that's important if we're children, then we are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, there is no crown without a cross. It was that way for Jesus, and it's that way for us as well. The way to glory is on a path of suffering. Jesus called it the narrow road. That's hard and difficult. That's not all it is, but it is that. Okay, I'm not saying it's just that. There's joy, there's fellowship with God and with each other, there is glorious joy in Christ, no doubt, but it's a road of difficulty. The Christian life is not all suffering, as I just said, but there is suffering, and this is, and I want to say this um, clearly, it is by God's design. In a fallen world, it is. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not telling the truth. Don't listen to them. So co-heirs with Christ are called to walk the Calvary road on the way to glory. Right? Co-heirs, co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. So if we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified. This is the program. This is the path. Okay? Then Paul says, this in verse 18. And I think this contains the main point of our passage. I think everything else is kind of supporting verse 18. Here's what verse 18 says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We need to hear that. I consider, now this is Paul saying this. Okay, stoned, beaten with rods, shipwrecked three times, one overnight bobbing up and down in the sea, in danger everywhere. And he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that future glory. So like I said, verses, I think the rest, verses 19 to 23, all support this verse. They all serve to explain the meaning of verse 18. And so here's kind of the big idea from this passage. And we need, we need to grab this because, like I said, we live in this world and we're going to suffer the consequences. We're going to suffer as we live in this world. So we, here's the point of this passage. Present suffering and calamity, both personal as well as cosmic or in the created order, is, is a bigger part of God's plan to give us a future that is better than we could ever imagine. Let me say that again. Present suffering and calamity, both personal, that we experience personally, and cosmically, or that we see happening in creation, is part of a bigger plan of God to give us a future that is better than we could ever imagine. So we see this in verse 18, present suffering, present suffering, not worth comparing with future glory. So I want to I kind of break apart this big idea just stated twice by looking at its, what I would say are three kind of constituent parts to that. And I want to show you from the text where I get it, okay? So th- three parts that kind of make up that big idea of this entire passage. 
first is this, the reality of present suffering. The reality of it. It won't be hard to see this because we, we, we see it. Second, God's bigger plan. And third, a better future. So first, the, the reality of present suffering. Now notice in verse 18, it uses the phrase, the sufferings of this present time. So Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I think you could add to it. I don't think this is uh, doing injury to the Bible if we said to the glory that's to be revealed to us in a future time. But we live in the present time. There's something about the present time that makes it a time of trials and suffering. The future age will not be an age of trials and suffering. Isn't that amazing? Like, wow, there will be a time when there is no suffering anywhere as far as the eye can see? Yes. Suffering will end, all of it, in the future, but not now. Not in the present. As Christians, we will suffer, and we should not be surprised when we do. I mean, it it does take us by surprise. But then... We get grounded and rooted and we're like, oh, that's right. Even this, even as I seek relief from this, God is doing something. I want to make this point because I think it's important and I think it's really clear from this passage. Paul is not talking only about persecution here. He's not. Now, you might think from what he said in verse 17 when he said, um, we're co-heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You might think, oh, he's talking about persecution, suffering with Christ. But we see that Paul has a broader view of suffering, which no doubt includes persecution. No doubt includes that. But it's not limited to that. And even when Paul went through his list of sufferings, guess what? He included uh, being in danger in the wilderness, being danger, in danger on the rivers, and being shipwrecked a few times. One, one was because of a big windstorm that came upon the sea. So here, look at what Paul does here. First, he says back in verse 17, we must suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. So he starts with the personal. Then Verse 18 is kind of our main verse, right? Present suffering is not worth comparing with future glory. But then he describes creation itself as suffering. He personifies creation and describes creation as under a weight of oppression and earnestly desirous of liberation. And then in verse 23, he goes back to the personal. So we see Paul starts with the personal, we must suffer with Christ, and then he goes to the creation, all of creation's groaning, anxiously longing, right, subjected to futility, that kind of language, and then he goes back to personal in verse 23 again. We ourselves groan. We do, we groan. And think about this. What happens in the created order affects Christians too. 
I think the idea that Christians are exempt from this as, as though no Christian has ever died in an earthquake or a tsunami is just silly. We, we understand that that happens. Good, Christ-loving, zealous followers of Jesus get caught up in forest fires. Verse 19, Paul describes creation as waiting with eager longing for something. I think the, me, I think the New American Standard says that creation is anxiously longing because creation, it's not a person, right? But Paul's describing it that way. It understands something is not right. Creation itself is longing, Paul says, for the revelation of the sons of God. We're going to talk about that a bit later, what that's all about. Verse 20, Paul says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, creation didn't say, yeah, I'll sign up for that. No, it, it was subjected. It didn't subject itself. It was subjected. It's the second law of thermodynamics, right? Entropy, the law of entropy, entropy, which says that the universe is heading toward more disorder and a depletion of energy. Now, we understand theologically why that is, but scientists explain it that way as well. Scripture teaches us that entropy is not just a quirk of nature, but creation was subjected to this. And it was not subjected willingly, but was subjected to futility by someone. So when we see things going haywire in the created order, it's not just a natural phenomena, phenomenon, phenomena, plural or singular, I don't know, whatever. Um, it is part of God's judgment on sin. Verse 21 says a creation is in bondage to corruption and needs to be set free. Now, what is this language, bondage to corruption? What does that mean? What is this? Well, I think maybe a better word, I mean, I'm not a Bible translator, but maybe it helps me understand this better. I think what Paul's getting at is the language of perishing or destruction. Creation is in bondage to death, to perishing, to destruction. I think that's what Paul's getting after. He's talking about creation's bondage, I mean, Everything living in the world eventually dies. Can you think of anything that dies? I think everything does. I mean, or will. Verse 22, Paul says that creation groans. There's a deep and painful sigh. Like a woman in labor groaning for the baby to come out. And right here, with all the talk of creation anxiously waiting and being subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption and groaning, all of that, we might be tempted to say, well, Paul's kind of, he's completely changed uh, the subject from our suffering and is talking just about cosmic suffering. But he's not. He didn't change the subject. Because verse 23 says, and not only the creation, the created order, you might say, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Who, first fruit of the Spirit, what does that mean? We have received the indwelling Spirit, right? We have received the down payment of the Spirit. 
in lieu of that future glorious inheritance that we talked about two weeks ago, I think. Maybe. Anyways. We have the Spirit. We ourselves who have the Spirit in us, we groan. We're going to talk, I think, in two weeks. I think I'll get to it in two weeks about how the Spirit also groans. Creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans. So this is the reality of suffering. We groan. As long as we live in these bodies, we groan. In these bodies, subject to weakness, we will never be completely free of pain and sorrow, disease, death. We'll never be completely free of it. So we groan. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, excuse me, 5, verses 4 and 5. He said, for a while we are still in this tent. Now, he's, when he uses language of tent, he's talking about his physical body, like the body that's going to die. Not resurrection body, but the body that's going to die. While we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is a perfect parallel passage to this text we're looking at in Romans 8. Okay? Paul says, while we're in this tent, we groan. Not to be unclothed. And I think what he means by that is we're not mainly groaning to put off this body and go to heaven and just live a spiritual existence. But to be fully clothed or further clothed to be given our resurrection bodies. That's what we groan for. Until then, we groan. But why is it like this? Why is there futility, decay, entropy, groaning, suffering? Well, it's part of a bigger plan that God has through these things. We have to see this. There's a phrase in verse 20 that I think is so key to understanding this. Here's what Paul says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Why suffering? There are different answers that could be given, and they are not completely wrong. I just think they don't get to the bottom of it. Some would say that there's suffering and decay and corruption in the world because of the devil. And no doubt, he does a lot of mischief and harm and causes suffering. But I don't think that answer goes deep enough. I mean, we can say that. I think that's true. I think there's truth there, but I don't think it goes deep enough. Some might say that the world is messed up and gone awry and there's suffering and so forth in the world because of sin. And certainly that's true, but I think we need to go a layer below that. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So sin, as kind of this um, inanimate force, didn't subject the world to futility. The devil didn't subject the world to futility. God did. You see that? 
The reason I think we can say that without any ambiguity is because it says that he subjected the world to futility in hope. The devil would never do that, right? Sin isn't a him. So it's subjected to futility because of him, namely God, who subjected the world to futility in hope. Why would God do this? Well, the world is so messed up and there's so much suffering. We're gonna get to, I think, the, the bigger purpose, a better future shortly. But I think this needs to be said. The world is messed up and there's so much suffering in the world. In order to represent externally the horror of sin. Let me say that again. The world is messed up and there is so much suffering in the world in order to give an external manifestation of the horror of sin. Almost nobody thinks sin is as bad as it really is. In fact, nobody does. But we should want to know how horrible it is as his people. And when we see what's going on in the world, we, I mean, listen, our hearts are full of compassion. Um, We want to do whatever we can to alleviate and relieve suffering. But we also ought to say, sin is horrific. Because God has subjected the world to futility because of it. Listen to Genesis 3. Now this is back when, this is when everything went wrong. Genesis 3. God speaking to Adam. He said, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That sounds familiar, right? Usually at a funeral, a graveside service. Romans 5.12 says that death didn't enter the world until sin. God pronounced the death sentence upon mankind because of sin. Think of the greatest catastrophe in terms of natural disaster anyways that ever happened on the face of the earth. You guys know what I'm talking about? It rained a lot. (laughs) The flood. The worldwide flood where God wiped everyone off the face of the earth except eight people. Why did he do that? Because he saw the great evil on the face of the earth. God can get our attention through pain in ways that he cannot otherwise. And I don't mean by that that every time we um, have a pain or suffer or something that we can pinpoint a sin. I don't mean that. But God does get our attention through pain. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is 
I mean, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But pain and suffering and futility and bondage to decay is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for Christians. We, under, we have to understand that. It is not the end of the story. God subjected the world to futility in hope. And that's huge. It's huge. Creation groans and we ourselves groan in the pains of childbirth. My wife has had six children. I was there for all of them when they were born. <laughs> Give me a badge of honor, right? It's like I'm, I'm the dad. But no, I mean, I was there. And uh, a few of them, there's a lot of groaning and crying. Not crying like weeping, but crying out. A couple of them are easier. A few of them are tough. So Paul describes that we groan in the lab- like, like a woman in labor. But there's something about a woman in labor that there's the groaning and the pain, but then the baby comes. <clears throat> Then the baby comes. It's like, here it is, so worth it. Beyond all comparison, I mean, just, my my wife did it five more times. (laughs) All right, it was good. God has a better future for us. And listen, I, I think we can have hope for a better future in this world to a degree, but Paul wants to point us beyond this present time to a future time. So it's not just a better future, it is glorious in the truest sense of the word. What is, the, what is creation anxiously longing for? What has God subjected creation to futility in hope for? What is creation groaning for? Well, there are three phrases that are used that I think all kind of point to the same thing. At least I'm not going to make any differentiation between them today. Verse 19 says, creation is anxiously longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Which means of the, what, is it, what does ESV say? Children of God or sons of God? Sons of God, okay. But ladies, you're included in that. You're a son too. <laughs> okay just like I'm part of the bride of Christ. Um, verse 21 says that, that, that creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a mouthful. Verse 23 says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly Wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the key. The re- but I think they all can talk about the same thing, the redemption of our bodies. Present, this present time in which we, we suffer is a time of living in these bodies. We await the redemption of our bodies. So creation anxiously waits for the, re- the revelation of the sons of God. And I just want to park here for a moment. What is this? I mean, aren't we sons and daughters now?
We are. The word revealing here means to unveil or to make known or, or to manifest or to uncover. And so there's something to be fully realized about us being sons and daughters, children of God, that will happen in the future. There's something that will be more fully manifested and uncovered and realized by us and by creation. Creation itself is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Here's what John says. I think this is helpful as we seek to understand this. John said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're God's children now, but there's something that we will be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's talking about when Christ comes. We're children now, but there's something we will become when Christ comes, when he appears. We will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then we will be fully manifested for who we are, children of God, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so creation is anxiously longing for that to happen. The final day when our Lord returns and our resurrection and our resurrection gives us final liberation and all of creation will be liberated and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now that's, I don't know. We live in a beautiful world, but something's going to happen when we are given, when Christ comes again and we are raised and given immortal bodies, this creation is going to be transformed. And it's going to obtain that liberation, the freedom of the glory of the children of God that we ourselves get. God is going to do something. Christ is going to do something. And so all of this, with this future glory, like we long for that, don't we? Is there something that in us that longs for that? You wake up with an achy back, you're longing. I mean, oh, right? Or you go through something far worse than an achy back. And I know some here are. We groan for that. We anxiously await and groan for the final stages of our adoption to be complete when our very bodies will be redeemed in the final resurrection and death itself will be swallowed up in victory. That's what we long for. And death will be swallowed up in victory. Think about that. Death, the greatest enemy, will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. And is there anything that causes us to groan more than death? The reality of death. This is the better future for which we ultimately hope for. That doesn't mean we just live in despair now and we're just like, oh. I don't, I don't think, it's not that kind of, it's like the groaning of a woman who knows a baby's on the way. But it's painful. Uncomfortable. This is the better future for which we ultimately hope for. This is what God has in mind 
fully freed, redeemed, and resurrected sons and daughters, and a renovated, recreated, glorified creation. No longer subject to decay and futility and death and so forth. And this is when we will enter into a future in which there is no more suffering. That's like the present time, part of it's suffering. That future time, it's gone. It's done. No more. Now, listen, again, we should seek to alleviate suffering now. But I think some think, no, for Christians, now ought to be that time. It's just, you can't find it in the Bible. You just can't. Jesus healed people who eventually got sick and died, right? He raised the dead, and guess what? Lazarus, I mean, think about that. He had to die twice. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe that wasn't fun. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so we await that future time when suffering and death is no more. Here's what Revelation 21, 4 and 5 says. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, with, excuse me, with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How many tears were shed from this congregation this week? He'll wipe them all away. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The present time passed away. And we enter into this new age free from all of that. Without this hope, I, I think living in this world is like, there's this phrase in Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas. Without this hope, it's like, we're, it's just always winter because we face life and hard things and hardships and suffering. It's like always winter and there's never Christmas to look forward to. Gloom all the way down to the bottom. Always a time of present suffering. But that's not true. Suffering does not have the final say. Our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, does. Suffering and futility and groaning is all temporary. It's real. I don't wanna, we don't want to minimize it at all, but it's all temporary. Even a hundred years of life it's all temporary. I was reading about Amy Carmichael. You guys, anyone heard of Amy Carmichael? She was a dear, I mean, oh my goodness, uh, missionary woman who took in uh, children in India who were often used as sex slaves at the Hindu temples there. She brought them in. She cared for, I don't know, like a thousand kids, I think, in her lifetime. Um, but when she, uh, I think she was about 60 or so, 62 she had a serious fall and broke her ankle and her hip and messed up her back bad. Spent the last 20 years of her life basically bedridden. 
but not without hope. She didn't sit and sulk, no doubt in pain, shed tears as you, she battled discouragement, no doubt, but God used her in those last 20 years. Even she ran her ministry from bed. <laughs> All of our stuff, because she had that future hope, that was the point. All of suffering and futility and groaning is temporary. God's glorious future is forever. Not only that, but our present suffering actually produces a future that is all the more glorious for having gone through the suffering in this present time. And I, I like, like what we go through in this present time actually makes our future better for having gone through it. For Christ. I don't mean when we, <laughs> when we suffer terribly because we sin terribly. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Because this, this is where I get that truth. For this light momentary affliction is preparing, New American Standard says producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now this is Paul talking against someone who suffered more than we have. He said this light and momentary affliction. For him, in comparison with the future, it was light and momentary. It was temporary and it didn't bear the weight in comparison with the future weighty glory that awaited him. So brothers and sisters, all present suffering and calamity is part of God's bigger plan to provide for us a better future than we could possibly imagine. And we need to set our hope on that. As we live in this present time with suffering and we, do, we, we seek to alleviate pain and I'm gonna call people forward to pray, I do believe God heals. My sister Sherry said he has healed her recently. I do believe that. We ought to pray for that. We ought to seek to see people relieved of suffering and difficulties and trials. But we also want to see the big picture of what God is up to in the midst of it and look forward to that better future and have that hope energize us and thrust us forward because it can and it does. Amen? Let's pray.